0: Tonight I'd like to talk about freeing ourselves from limited views. And it turns to me that when I make up these talks that I'm really speaking to myself. There's usually so much of what I'm exploring with you that I'm exploring with myself. So I always find that rather ironic it may come across as if I'm delivering this for you <laughs> but I'm doing it as much for myself so uh, everybody benefits here. <laughs> for the last ten years, ten winters I've uh, been able to go to India to Bodh to teach a 20-day course there with Christopher Titmuss and some other teachers. Christopher started teaching there about 20 years ago and invited me in 1987, and I've been going nearly, well, I think every year. I've been going to India every year since then and to Bodh Gaya every year except one. I was just there in January, and... One of the main features of our retreat there is in a Thai monastery in Bodh This is the place where the Buddha was enlightened. The tree where he is said to have sat is just down the road, and so it makes the um, kind of the the thrill of the meditation retreat much much more much stronger. And it takes place in this Thai monastery, and in Bodh Gaya, there's about 15 temples from all the different Buddhist countries. And because Christopher was a Buddhist monk in Thailand, they, the abbot there allows him to, to use the monastery for this month. And in the monastery grounds, we're in the back, where the, where the monks and nuns and the pilgrims stay, and in the front, is this very grand and magnificent temple in the Thai architecture with gold-plated roof and, and tiles and little mirror tiles, so it just kind of sparkles and shimmers. And every morning during our retreat, there's about 60 or 70 children who come to the temple from the village, from the nearby villages, to listen to one of the monks tell either story or or chant with them, to give them some teachings. And Christopher usually goes and sits with the children and gives them some teaching as well, and it's translated by the Buddhist monk for the children. And this happens about, well, during what we have here, during the work period, between about 8 and 9 in the morning. So most of our retreatants go over to the temple and sit with the children. And these children are the poorest of the poor. The villages around Bodhgaya are... Bihar is the state that this is in, and it's the poorest state in all of India. And so even, it's the middle of the winter, and people think it's warm there, but it's not. It's quite cold in the morning. And the children come with just tiny threads of cotton clothing no shoes, uh, very few of them have blankets. And the older children, five, six-year-old children, are usually carrying the babies, who are about eight months or a year, who have no clothes. And so they come to the temple, they parade into the temple. And it's quite a sight, and it's uh, quite an important feature for the retreatants. (laughs) to be sitting in meditation and contemplation about the nature of their existence through the day, and then to sit with these very poor uh, children in the temple. And so when when I talk to the yogis on retreat, often the children come up in the interviews, the relationship of what happens for them in relationship to the children. and on the last retreat, uh, this happened a number of times, and it puts the, puts the yogis through so much. <laughs> Some days when they go to the temple, what they see, what the yogis will see is just the poverty and the sickness and the illness, and they'll just start to cry, and they'll feel so much um, grief and sorrow in themselves. And then the next day they'll go to the temple and they'll see the light coming out of the children's eyes and the smiles and the way they're so relaxed and light and don't seem to be bothered by that much of their circumstances and the playfulness and the cheerfulness and it just makes them laugh. And then the next day they'll go and then they'll cry and then they'll laugh. And they'll come to me and they'll say, well, are they suffering or are they happy? are they suffering are they happy and they want to know they want to understand and they're going through all this emotional turmoil about these children but the difficulty is that the mind wants to land on some truth on some view the mind wants to make a decision they're suffering these children are suffering they're they're unhappy their lives are miserable or the mind wants to land on Oh, but they're not affected by it. They're very happy, and you can see how much they laugh, and nothing bothers them, nothing touches them. They're used to it. You know? And the mind just moves between these two views and wants to know, wants to understand. But the problem is <laughs> that we don't know. We can't know. And it's probably not one way or the other anyhow. But the truth is that the, what's really going on is this yogi's changing landscape of their own mind. One day they're perceiving one way, and the next day they're perceiving another way. And there's really no problem in this, because this is what our minds do. We are touched, we're impacted by our world, by our environment, by our perceptions. the mind is touched. The mind comes up with all different ideas and theories and and, uh, views on things. That's not a problem. The problem is when the mind gets fixated. When the mind gets fixated on any view, on any perception, and says, this is the way it is. And if it doesn't know how it is, that frustration... That can arise through the not knowing. But I've got to know. (laughs) There has to be an answer. There has to be a truth. And then the grabbing on to, well, it is this way. They are suffering. They can't be happy. How could anybody be happy in those kind of conditions? And then the arising of that sense of self righteousness and knowing what's right and what's wrong. This is the predicament that we find ourselves in and we don't have to be in circumstances that are as challenging as being with poor children in India. We can see it as we sit here, looking at our own minds. The way that we get fixated in our own views. Our views about ourselves, and who we think we are, and how we think we are, and our views about other people, and how they are, and our views about the situations, and how it is, and I know it's like that, and don't tell me otherwise. And we get very rigid, and to the extent that this goes on, we can feel very rigidified, very tense, very conflicted in ourselves. So I think this... um, Called the identification process. The way that we identify with our own mind, the way that we grasp on, the way that we cling on to our views about things. This attachment, it's a kind of attachment, causes us pain. It causes us to feel fragmented, separate, and isolated because we have a tendency to believe our own minds. And we often don't question what our minds are saying. And that's the beauty of this kind of environment, this kind of retreat, this kind of practice, is it brings into question all these kinds of conceptual overlays that we're carrying, these structures that we create in our own mind. We have to challenge them. We have to look at them and say, what is true? What is the truth? Because when we identify with just these fragments of our minds, we are identifying with just a fragment of reality rather than the whole. It's the way that we fragment reality and don't see the whole. We miss the wholeness of ourselves and we miss the wholeness that's right here in front of us. And this is the identification process which I'd just like to explore a little bit more to see what happens, what happens in our own minds when we get identified, when we do identify with a fragment of our being instead of the wholeness of our being. We just do a little exercise, just a very simple little exercise. We identify ourselves fairly enough as a man or as a woman. It's a concept that we hold, and we usually hold it pretty dearly and pretty securely. (laughs) Something that we believe in this concept of ourselves. But just now, if we just close our eyes, just sit for a minute and close your eyes, and just go into the direct experience of your being. Feel the breath, the sensations that are moving and pulsating in your body, the thoughts that might be passing by, Where is the man? Where is the woman? When you let go of this tightly-held concept, you can't really find it. We hold these ideas and these concepts so strongly but we don't often question them and go deeper into the truth of our being. What happens for us? There's a rising, there's a contact with some sense impression, there's the arising of a perception, and then a thought about it. This is quite a natural process that takes place. The contact with some sense impression the perception the acknowledgement of that and the thought about it this happens again and again and again but when we get caught we tighten in the mind around that thought it's like a contraction a tightening a kind of narrowing in the mind which just blocks out other input in that moment. We become somewhat fixated with that as the whole reality. It's a contraction in the mind, a tightening in the mind, and with that, a sense of being right, you know, a sense that that's the way it is. It's almost as if that sense of being right arises with the contraction. It's, it's part of the package of the identification and in that time we're not able to consider any other viewpoints or any other information and depending how tightly we get locked in that view we can't really even listen we might not be able to listen to another but certainly we can't listen to ourselves and that attachment that narrowing into that view separates this from that for and against Right and wrong, good and bad. It creates this separation right there. And as the mind narrows, our options close. We just don't feel that sense of freedom or that sense of lightness or that sense of ease. We're locked in in that moment. But if in that moment there is awareness, there is some mindfulness of this pattern. We can pay attention to that happening and relax that contraction. Relax that holding right in the moment. We can see, and I know you've seen this for yourself, that you can get fixated and then you go, "All oh, right, I'm really getting caught in this. I'm really getting uh, uh, attached to this view. And then there can just be the seeing of that and then the letting go, the lightning the opening and a sense of freedom and release in that and when we are able to do that this frees the mind and it frees the mind from what? it frees the mind from clinging from a holding from attachment which strengthens that sense of fragmentation of separation and brings us back into a sense of wholeness Every moment of mindfulness, every moment that we catch this weakens this clinging, weakens this attachment to the views, to the views of this is the way it is, this is the way I am. And every moment that we're mindful reinforces the non-clinging and the clear-seeing, which leads to more wisdom and more understanding. In my group this morning, there were about three dog stories. (laughs) So I felt I had to bring a dog story tonight. (laughs) Dogs seem to be the theme to a certain extent. It seems that on every retreat there's some kind of animal or creature or something that a lot of people seem to talk about. Today it was dogs. (laughs) This is a story from one of my teachers Sharon Salzberg, who's actually going to be here in August, and it's something she wrote in her book, Loving Kindness, which is an excellent book. One fall, I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, which is located in a rural area. Each morning, I would go for a walk very early, just as it was getting light. This walk took me past the mobile home where Max lived. Max was a huge dog. He looked like a cross between a Doberman Pinscher and a mountain lion. I started hearing reports that Max had grown agitated and aggressive, snarling at people and threatening to attack them. I had been experiencing a series of unfortunate events that fall, and I thought I might end this cycle of difficulty by being torn limb by limb by this dog. (laughs) Every day at dawn, I would set out with a certain Max consciousness, (laughs) my fear growing with each step as I approached his territory. For many days, Max had not been in the yard as I passed, but I was becoming increasingly tense about the prospect of an encounter. As the days went on, I found that my very first thought when I woke in the morning <laughs> centered on Max <laughs> and my fear of him. I had read that His Holiness the Dalai Lama's very first thought upon waking is prayer of love and compassion <laughs> dedicated all of the, dedicating all of the coming actions of the day to the benefit of all living beings starting the day as I was, in fear of Max, (laughs) was beginning to seem pretty ignoble. (laughs) Finally, one morning, Max was there. From far away, I saw him sitting in the twilight. Fear rose sharply. I proceeded slowly, with each step, seeing him as as increasingly separate from myself and as a tremendous threat. He's out there. He's very big and he's getting closer. Finally, I arrived. Max stood up. I stopped. We looked at each other. And then I blurted out the first thing that came to mind. Max! Maxine is my middle name! (laughs) People used to call me Max, too, you know? (laughs) We looked at each other for a few minutes more. Then Max sat down again, (laughs) and I walked on. From that point on, I saw that love was a choice for me in many different situations. I developed a relationship to Max, a feeling of connection. He seemed like someone I knew, someone who might be in a bad state, who might even lose control and actually try to hurt me but someone who was nevertheless a friend. I did not at all stop being careful, but Max ceased to be a terrible, alien creature, a great hulking beast out there waiting to get me. He stopped being the other. We have to see how Our own view, the way that we're perceiving things, colors our reality. It's our own mind states that give shape to our reality. It's that filter over our own consciousness that gives that sense of how things are. There is no objective reality out there. There isn't like some reality that we're trying to get in touch with, that we're trying to know or understand. The reality is conditioned by our own minds. A very good simile that I I find for this, probably one that you've heard, is the simile of The Clear Pond. And we can imagine our minds like a clear empty pond. Empty meaning empty of weeds and empty of mud and empty of silt, but just the clear, cool water, pure water. You can imagine our minds being this. And in a moment what can arise is the desire is that intense desire, that tense longing for something. And when this arises, it's like pouring beautiful dyes into the clear pond and getting entranced by the colors, which prevents us seeing into the depths of the pond, into the depths of the water. In another moment, there may be aversion or anger that arises in the mind. And this would be like if the pond started boiling, if the water started boiling, and it started to get turbulent and disturbing and hot. I've seen pools like this in New Zealand, the hot pools. We walk down the road, and all of a sudden the water's bubbling, <laughs> steaming. You know, it's like the agitated mind, the angry mind. You can't see to the depths. There's no clarity there. And in another moment there may be this what's called the sloth and torpor, the dullness, the sleepiness of the mind. And when this arises, it's like the pond being filled with weeds and algae. Too thick to see to the bottom of the pond. No clarity. Just full of this thick weeds. And in another moment, there may be a a rising of the restlessness, the agitated mind-body. And this would be like if the wind came and swept across the pond, disturbing the surface, making the surface quite agitated, so we still can't see to the bottom. No clarity there. And the other one that may arise is doubt. Doubt also being a mind state that very much colors our perception. When we have the thoughts about ourselves, we're not good enough, I can't do it, I'm not the right kind of person for the job. Or doubt about another. Doubt whether they can help us out or... uh, doubting, doubting their confidence and who they are. This is a very strong mind state that colors our perception. And it's as if the bottom of the pond was stirred up, stirred up all the mud, and the pond gets cloudy and murky, and we can't see anything because the doubt is so thick. This is what colors our perception these kinds of passing mind states. But it's difficult to see them as the changing landscapes of our own mind because we identify with them and we think that's who we are. I am this angry person. I am this doubtful person. Or I am a lustful, greedy person. We can fixate on that view about ourselves, which again limits the possibility of us seeing ourselves in our wholeness. And we can see it's, it's such a... I mean, this is our predicament. This is what happens. Even, even when we have times of being very clear and very calm, very at ease for a while, the next minute we get caught. We find ourselves locked into something we just Just a moment, something goes by, and we get caught in some idea about ourselves or another person, some mind state, and there we are again. So, all we can do is wait for that moment when there is some clarity, when there is some clear seeing, and we say, Yeah, that isn't the whole picture. That isn't the whole picture. There's more to this picture. And to somehow let go of that limited thought, let go of that limited view, and again relax and open to the larger expanse, to the possibility of wholeness, to vastness, to that which we are. These concepts that we have about ourselves and other people, when we look closely, they're always changing. Anyhow, one of the the wonderful things we can see through the meditation is we can see how quickly these views change. In one moment we may have a certain idea about ourselves, and then the next moment there may be a completely contradictory view or opinion. We may see ourselves get very angry about something in one moment. Um, the story came today about the crumble running out. I suppose a few people got quite upset about that. There was this delicious pudding that was made by one of the staff, and it wasn't enough. <laughs> and so the anger that arose, from some people reported, about people not leaving enough for other people to have humble. You know, anger at others and then anger at oneself for getting angry and just being locked in this anger. And then seeing what's happening, sitting down, and being able to come to some place of forgiveness towards oneself, that one got so angry. And that all dissolving. Yeah? So maybe one moment really getting locked in a view I'm this really angry person and what's wrong with me that I get so angry. And the next moment oh, I have the capacity for forgiveness. I have the capacity to let go. Being with these changing views seeing that it does change who we are and how we experience ourselves changes moment to moment to moment. When we look closely we can't say This is who I am. This is how I am. Because it's always changing. These views are unreliable. I hope that if nothing else happens in this week, we have some deep sense of that. The views we hold about ourselves and others and our situations, they're unreliable as soon as I assert this is who I am this is how I am it will (laughs) change and the opposite will be true and if I assert who somebody else is and this is how they are in another moment they may demonstrate a completely opposite behavior they're not capable of showing any love (laughs) I've known this person for ten years and they've never shown me an ounce of love And then the next ten minutes you get a phone call. This person calls asking how you are. Watching how we grab on and hold on to our views about things. One of my favorite lines when I was reading the suttas this last fall the the discourses that i talked about last night when the buddha said non-identification with anything has been declared by the blessed one for in whatever way one conceives the fact is ever other than that the fact is ever the fact is ever other than that the fact is never the way we conceive it for in whatever way one conceives, the fact is other than that. This became one of my colons that I reflected on for those months. Whatever way that I conceive, the fact is other than that. What that does to the mind, <laughs> it doesn't give the mind <laughs> much Power or much stability. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I like this um, saying so well that I, I had a I had a mirror in my room, rather large mirror I thought, and I, in a very fairly small room. And, and just by habit, I would notice that I would just keep looking at myself in the mirror as, You know, if I was in the room, you know, just that, the way you kind of look over. And it was getting so tedious. And, and also, <laughs> my response to the image in the mirror, you know, the whole thing that goes on when you see yourself in the mirror, it was getting so tedious that I finally took the mirror down and I put this up <laughs> and said... That in whatever way I conceive, (laughs) the fact is other than that. And it was wonderful that each time I went past that spot to remind myself that I had no idea what I looked like (laughs) or how other people perceived me. It was just something that my mind created, a self-created prophecy and why even spend the energy on it? Why even waste the time? And just to just, just allow myself to go deep, deep into that reflection. So we really have to pay attention. Pay attention to these views that we have about ourselves. Particularly the judging the, the the thoughts that arise that are so critical of ourselves and condemning of ourselves that put down ourselves they're just they're not saying anything about who we are they only have the power that we give them but in a moment when we don't give them the power they're like balloons that you let the air out of they just disappear (laughs) just left this little empty bag (laughs) there's nothing there and the comparing thoughts the thoughts that set ourselves up against another how these thoughts just hurt us so badly and create that sense of separation and fragmentation and isolation. They're not true. It's another thing that our mind is creating. Our mind is is setting up. There's another really lovely story that I need to read because um, this is Joseph Goldstein. Uh, this is Joseph and Sharon teach together, so it somehow feels appropriate to read one from each. This is Joseph's story. Um, Joseph Goldstein is one of the co-founders of the Insight Meditation Society with Sharon, and he is my teacher. He said, I, I recall one bout I had with this comparing mind during the first retreat I did with my teacher from Burma, Upandita Sayadaw. And this was about 1983, and I was at this retreat I was an attendant for Upandita at the time so it was interesting reading this story it was his first visit to the United States and he ran a very demanding and rigorous retreat we were all a little nervous not knowing much about this monk from Asia and wanting to apply ourselves as much as possible we were working quite hard in a demanding situation after some weeks I saw a few people writing in little notebooks and each successive day someone else would begin using one. This practice was very unusual for a Vipassana retreat because people are asked not to read or write during intensive practice. And because the retreat was silent, I could not ask why they were doing it. My mind started thinking, Upandita must be asking people to do something. I wonder when he's going to ask me. Soon I began noticing that the people using the notebooks were the ones I considered the really good meditators. (laughs) Day after day I went for my interview with Upandita, and he didn't say anything to me about notebooks or about doing any unusual meditation assignment. I started started feeling worse and worse about myself and my practice. It must be that I was not one of the good ones. (laughs) After a while, everybody else started writing a notebook, even the people who I thought were not such good notebooks. <laughs> so then I had the thought, well, I must be doing so well in my practice that I don't need a notebook. <laughs> Back and forth, my mind went between these two views. Good yogi? Bad yogi? What kind of yogi? (laughs) Slowly driving myself a little crazy. At the end of the retreat, I found out that Upandita never asked anybody to keep a notebook. People were doing it just as a way of remembering and being able to report their experience accurately. (sighs) So, the mind the mind we just (laughs) go on and on Mm -hmm. unless we can catch it Mm -hmm. unless there is some (coughs) wisdom unless there is some understanding of why this may not be such a good idea what might be the value what might be the help if we start to pay attention to how we get caught, how we get fixated, and how we fragment our world. It doesn't help to throw out words, to throw out thoughts, (laughs) to throw out language. I mean, some people think this might be a useful option. Let's just stop talking. (laughs) Let's try to empty our minds let's try to quiet the mind so that there's no more thoughts but it doesn't work this isn't the it, it, even if you could do it it's not the solution it's not the answer we need to use words we need to use language we need to use our thoughts our thinking minds they're an important part of our being and our functioning in our daily lives we have to use conventional language we have to use the language of I and other it's the way we operate it's the way we are in our world that's not the problem the problem is how we hold it can we hold it lightly can we hold these thoughts with ease with an attitude of renunciation and letting go. This is the practice, because this is what will allow us to touch the underlying reality, that underlying reality which is calling out to us, which is waving at us, (laughs) saying, hello, I'm here, And as we are able to let go more and more of our fixed views and our fixed ideas, we can touch more and more into that reality, into that nature, into the truth of our being, of who we are. We can deepen into this, into this nature, where all of these differences, where all of this, these ideas of conditions and conditioning, it all starts to drop away, it all starts to melt away, and then we can rest, we can be at peace. Let's sit together for a few minutes.